Uh, we are going to continue in Joshua. Um, I know it is Palm Sunday, and there are some Palm Sundays in which uh, we specifically would talk about um, Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, his declaration, declaration as king uh, of the people, uh, and the shouting of Hosanna. Uh, this morning, I wanted to continue through the book of Joshua as uh, we have had a few sermons in a row now as we've looked at uh, the sin um, of Achan uh, and before that the sin of Jericho. And we've talked about God's uh, severe punishment and his consequence and his wrath that he must pour out against sin. And in chapter, uh, in chapter 8 of Joshua, we're going to see uh, a piece of what God does and how he works that needs to be linked to chapters 6 and 7. And to take a few weeks off would have not uh, it would have not uh, fulfilled, I believe, the intention of even the chapters as they all tend to blend together. Actually, many people uh, say that chapter 7 and chapter 8, really it's all one continuing thought. Uh, and as they broke up the different chapters, they were uh, obviously trying to keep chapters not too long. And uh, we need to make sure that we understand chapter 8 uh, in light of chapter 6 and chapter 7. So uh, we're going to continue to look at Joshua this morning. And as we look at Joshua, I want you to begin our time together. I want to think about what it's like uh, in the time in your life. And I know not all of us are married in the room, so I I won't say it's just isolated to marriages. Uh, But a time in your life in which you have done something to hurt uh, someone in your life. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a parent. uh, Maybe uh, it was one of your children. Or maybe, uh, as happens so often, you may have done something uh, in your marriage that is something that would be a sin against someone. It was something that you did, and, and all of us have had moments of what I would call stupidity, where we do things that are selfish, and we don't consider another person, and we end up hurting them in a deep way. Now, some of us maybe have hurt people uh, really, really deeply. Others of us, maybe it's been fairly surface level, but still we should all understand, because we're all human, that there are times in our life when we, when we let people down and, and really hurt others. And most people, uh, if, uh, truly, uh, if they truly care about this person that they have hurt, it affects the way they live. It affects the way they feel. I know at times in my relationship with my wife, when I have messed up and done something that was selfish and, and not considering the rest of my family, uh, usually she doesn't even have to say anything. I know it. Uh, and, uh, and there can be a difference in the way we live. There's a feeling of uh, of sadness, uh, of shame at some points. There's a, there's a, a just a, a feeling in the pit of our stomach in which we've done something that we feel like can't be undone. We know it can't be undone and we have hurt someone we love. And that feeling is a natural feeling and we should feel that. If we don't feel emotion when we hurt somebody, uh, then uh, we are obviously not functioning in the way God has created us. We are called to have love and compassion and, and uh, to be selfless people, even though so often we can go our selfish ways. Uh, but I want you to think about that, how badly you may have hurt somebody in the past, but I don't want to stop there. I want to think about hopefully in that situation, if your relationship was close enough, that there would have been a moment of reconciliation. A moment in which you admitted and said, I have done wrong by you. I have been selfish. I have done this. I have done that. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's your parent, whether it's a friend, whoever it might be. And that person truly forgives you. And that person really takes you back in, in a sense. 
where, uh, you know, maybe you've been in the doghouse, now you're back in the house. Uh, you've been on the couch, now maybe you're actually able to be in the bedroom. So, like, there's this understanding that there is a reconciliation that happens. And, of course, it goes deeper than that. And a reconciliation that happens between friends or between spouses or between parent and child. And the difference, of, the difference that that makes when someone will offer forgiveness, someone will ask for forgiveness, forgiveness is granted and reconciliation happens, is there's really not much of a better feeling. The feelings of shame and regret and anger, sadness, depression, whatever the feeling might be after you've hurt somebody, is completely flipped around. And it's a feeling of complete and utter relief. A, a, a feeling of relief to know that you are no longer being held to what you did and, and that there you can move forward in your relationship with what, whoever the person might be. And it's refreshing and it's renewing and it's, uh, it restores your soul. Uh, and I, I believe that all of us have probably had a situation in our life in which we've experienced that. I want you to tap into and think about those emotions as we look at chapter 8 this morning in just a moment. Uh, we're going to look at today as we've been looking at some hard subjects about sin and how God's wrath has to be poured out against sin. That God's ultimate wrath was poured out on Jesus and if we accept his sacrifice then the wrath has been paid for through him but yet sin still brings consequences and still sin is still something that God deeply cares about. And honestly if we just left it there it could get very depressing as we look at our lives because all of us struggle with sin. Uh, we all struggle with doing the selfish thing, going our own way, instead of listening to what God has to say. And so it can be very depressing and almost just uh, really just debilitating the way we talk about it. But in chapter 8, in a moment, we're going to see that God uh, restores and renews Israel even after he's dealt with their sin of Achan. After the Achan's sin has been dealt with, we see that God moves, in, moves on with them in mercy and grace. And so before we read chapter 8, you guys can look at uh, your notes to see uh, a recap of where we've been. I'm not going to spend much time on this because we need to get into the meat of what we're looking at today. But you know that we've seen that God has called Joshua and Israel to have courage to trust in God's promises, laws, and presence. That courageous faith in God is knowledge, emotion, and action. That Israel crosses the Jordan River in faithful obedience. They do it in remembrance and they do it as a celebration of God's covenant. Uh, God has declared his presence and purpose of his glory to Joshua, if you remember a few weeks ago. God gives complete victory over Jericho to the people of Israel, that sinful nation that needed to be judged. God used Israel as his instrument of judgment. And then finally, last week, we see that sin in Israel brings defeat at the hands of Ai. That this small town, this this small fortress uh, that they should have been able to take with very few men, they end up losing a battle, and they end up losing men, and Joshua is wondering what is going on, and as he asks God, why has this happened? Why have you allowed us to have this defeat? God reveals that there is sin within the camp, that Achan has taken some of the things he was not supposed to take, because God said, everything needs to be destroyed except what you're giving to the treasury of mine my treasury. And Achan took things for himself, buried them in the bottom of his tent, lied about it, covered it up. They, they experienced the consequences. The sin is discovered. Achan is punished along with his whole family. And God makes a very clear statement that even in his own people, he takes sin very seriously and consequences must be paid. And that wrath is something that is just as much of a part of his character as any other part. 
And so that's how, where we've been, that's the journey we've been taking, and now we will find ourselves in chapter 8. And here's the main idea, just right as we read this, just be thinking about what we see here. The main idea in chapter 8 today is that God gives forgiveness and restoration to his people. Whereas, yes, God is a God who must deal with sin, and he does have wrath for sin, and his anger does burn against those who continually sin and turn their backs on him. God is also a God of forgiveness and restoration. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we read through chapter 8. So if you would join me, turn to chapter 8 and we will read along. We'll be going through the whole chapter and then we'll break it down in some smaller pieces. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you uh, did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us just as before, we shall flee before them. And then they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush that lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, and he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. Then all the fighting men who were with him went up and draw near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai, and the worst, uh, to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all the people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place towards Arabah to meet the Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand towards Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand towards the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as, they had stretched, as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to the city uh, and set it on fire. And when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled <clears throat> to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was, uh, there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. 
When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued him, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made a forever heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the tree of, or the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, they took this body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. And at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with all their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebel, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of it that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. A lot happens here. We're going to break this down into a few points as we look at God is a God that brings forgiveness and restoration to Israel. On the heels of Achan's sin, uh, we see verse, chapter 8 starts in a completely different mood than chapter 7 started. In chapter 7 it starts, but the people of Israel broke, with regard, uh, broke faith in regard to the devoted things, and Achan the son of Carmi... The son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and of the tribe of Judah, and some of the devoted took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. That's how chapter seven starts. Chapter eight, and the Lord said to Joshua, "Do not fear or be dismayed." There's a complete difference. There's a change in how God now is reacting and responding to Israel. Now that the sin has been purged out of their midst, God is a God of bringing forgiveness and restoration. We can even see that in the very first verse of each chapter. So the first thing we see that God does as he restores Israel, as he forgives Israel, is that God restores his presence to Israel. He restores his presence. In the verse, first 17 verses, we see that God, as uh, in chapter 7, he even says, until this sin is taken care of, I can be with you no more. He says, my presence will no longer go before you. My, the strength of my hand upon your city, upon your people, will not longer, no longer be there as long as sin is harbored. But, he, but now we see that God comes and says his presence returns. And the Lord comes to Joshua in, verse, in chapter 8, do not fear and do not be dismayed. And what we see is that God promises victory to Joshua. Whereas he told Joshua before sin need to be dealt with, now he says, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, I'm with you again, and I can prove it by the fact that I have given into your hand the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. God has given the victory to Israel again. Notice in chapter 7, this was never mentioned. Joshua went forward, they lost the battle, God did not give him guarantee of victory, now he does because the presence or the hand of God is now back upon the people of Israel. And God promises victory. 
Not only does God promise victory here in the first 17 verses, but in the next section of this part, he, Joshua, God gives Joshua the battle plan. As we continue to read, it says, lay an ambush against the city uh, behind it. That's all that we're told that God told to Joshua, but then Joshua explains to the people what the rest of the plan is. But even as he explains the, the plan, he again and again will say, this is what the Lord has said to do. You shall do this according to the word of the Lord in verse 8. That God has given the battle plan. Sound familiar? It should. When Jericho was taken, uh, Joshua did not sit down and come up with the battle plan. God came to Joshua and said, this is the battle plan. You will surround the city, you'll march, and the Jericho will fall. And it happened. Now God gives them another plan. Now this plan is a different type of plan. This is not, uh, this is not going to be accomplished just on the uh, shoulders of a miraculous work like Jericho was. This is going to be a plan that is multifaceted in which it is a, a brilliant military strategy. And basically God tells Joshua to set up an ambush. To, to get 30,000 uh, fighting units out there and to divide them up in a way that there would be, they would be able to ambush. Now, as an aside, really quickly, I didn't talk about this too much uh, in any other part of this sermon, so I just want to say it now. It's interesting how God uses the failure of the Israelites to bring victory. Notice that the reason they're able to ambush the people of Ai is because we read in here, it says, they're going to assume that if I come with a force and we start to retreat, when we start to retreat, they're going to chase us just like happened before. Because the first time when they lost the battle, they were losing the battle, they retreated and they were followed. And so Ai is at a point where they're ready to fight and they know as soon as Joshua and his men that he's bringing forward, as soon as they start to retreat, the men of Ai and the fighting men of Bethel, who is a nearby city, are going to come out and they're going to think they can destroy us because that's what happened before. And God uses what happened before and says, now we're going to use that to our advantage. And therefore, they will start to pursue you and then you'll come to the city when it's left alone and destroy the city. And so we see that God gives Joshua the battle plan. And he says, set up an ambush, as I have said. And then we see in verses 8 through 17, we see that Israel follows God's word. Not only does God give Joshua the battle plan, but Israel follows God's word. God told them how to do it, what to do, and they obey. Another showing of his presence, that they see his hand and they trust his hand. They trust in his presence and they do what he says to do. No doubt with the type of power that they had as far as the amount of troops, they could have overpowered AI easily just on a full frontal attack. But yet they listened to God and did what he asked and the battle plan is executed. And as it is executed, we see that God is again showing his hand and his presence to his people. The second thing we see that God restores and brings forgiveness and he restores Israel is that God restores his blessing to Israel in verses 18 through 29. God restores his blessing to Israel. So we see at the end of verse 17 that the, the plan worked. They, they, they do it, and not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. So God's plan worked. Everybody left the city, and the ambush hasn't happened yet, but everybody has left the city, and it's exposed and open and ready to be taken. And then we see in the next section of this chapter of this book that we see God restores his blessing to Israel, and it starts with complete victory over Ai. 
He tells Joshua to stretch out the javelin that is in his hand, for I will give it into your hand. Again, showing the presence and the power of God. And Joshua uh, stretched out the javelin that he had in his hand toward the city, and then the ambush happened. And as we read these verses, we won't read them again as we've already read them, but God, as they execute the plan, God gives his blessing of victory. Unlike before when they attacked Ai and, the, and the, the victory was not theirs and they experienced defeat because of their sin, now God gives the blessing of victory over Ai. Complete victory. Verse 27, we see that God not only gave complete victory over Ai, but God gave the spoils of the battle to Israel. God gave the spoils to Israel in verse 27. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. Now, isn't this interesting? In Jericho, they were told, don't take any of the plunder for yourself. Don't take any of the spoils. Don't take any the, anything. And everything that you do keep is only for the treasury of God. And Achan couldn't obey that, and so he tried to circumvent God's plan and hide some things under his tent. Now, this is the interesting thing as I look at this, and some other commentators have said the same thing. Isn't it interesting that if Achan would have just had more patience, if Achan would have waited on the hand of God and obeyed God that what he wanted so desperately, the plunder of a battle, he would have had had he just waited and trusted God. And yet he didn't and his patience ran out and he sinned. And so we see here that different from Jericho, God says, I'm not only going to bless you with victory, but now I'm going to bless you with the plunder. You can take what is here for yourselves. This is a blessing that God promises. And as God restores this blessing, Israel takes the time to make a memorial to remember the victory. Israel made a memorial to remember his victory in verses 28 and 29. Uh, we see that there is a, uh, the AI is burned. Uh, it's left in a heap of ruins as a reminder of God's power, as a reminder of God's sovereignty over the nation they are coming to take. And then in verse 29, and he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Don't miss the, uh, the emphasis here on this pile of stones. First of all, the king of Ai is hanged uh, from a tree uh, only till sunset. That is, uh, that has been prescribed and uh, in, as you look earlier on in Deuteronomy 21, 23, if you want to write that down, uh, Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, it talks about that anyone is hung from a tree, it is a symbol of the curse of God. Uh, that uh, that no, everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God, And it's a physical reminder that God is a God who punishes sin. God is a God who is the king over all kings and will bring accountability to all other kings. And so the king hangs in the tree, and that is a sign of the curse of God. Getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, you'll know in the book of Galatians, and I don't have the actual reference, uh, you can look it up. And in the book of Galatians, this is also referenced, that as someone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God, who do we know who hung on a tree it wasn't a literal tree, it was a cross made of wood, and that is Jesus Christ. And as we talked about the last few weeks, Jesus took the wrath and the curse of sin on himself so that we don't have to if we'll come to him in faith. We'll talk about that more at the end. 
Now remember also, so after this public display of the curse of God upon Ai and upon the pagan culture that has turned their back on God and is experiencing and practicing all the sins we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, then uh, now God also gives them the opportunity to make a pile of stones, a heap of stones over the king, which stands there to this day. The last time a heap of stones was used was in chapter 7. Chapter 7, the heap of stones was put over Achan and his family to remind Israel of the consequence and the severity of sin. Now a heap of stones is raised over another uh, king, but this would be a symbol to Israel, not of their failure, but this would be a symbol of God's victory, a symbol of God's blessing. So whereas one pile of stones would would remind Israel of their failures, it would remind Israel of God removing his hand and removing his blessing, now this second heap of stones is they would see that even to the day of the writing of Joshua, that it would give them an understanding of restoration and forgiveness, that would remind them of God's presence and God's power returning. And so there's a very important thing we see here about memorializing these moments that Israel does. And so as God restores his presence and God restores his blessing, now in point three of today's sermon, we see that as God has given them these things back and he's restored these things to them, now Israel restores their worship to God. That Israel restores their relationship and their worship with God. You see, they didn't take any time here to consider that this battle was theirs and that they were the ones who gave victory over Ai. Immediately, they know exactly what they need to do. Uh, Joshua and the rest of the people take time to worship God. And so Israel restores their worship to God. We start by seeing that Joshua built an altar for sacrifice in verses 30 and 31. Verses 30 and 31, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. And so we see then that they build an altar for what? For sacrifice. We see that there's burnt offerings that are offered. We also see that there are peace offerings that are offered on this altar that Joshua builds. He understands that all worship and all glory and all honor needs to go to God and God alone. That he won't take any of the, the, the blessing, any of the power, any of the glory that so many other military leaders may take. But Joshua understands that all the worship, all the glory, all the honor needs to go to God. Burnt offerings are often sacrificed as a, as a symbol of forgiveness of sin. So, once again, God has restored and forgiven what happened with Achan in the camp of Israel. And we see that in the burnt offerings. We also see peace offerings that are given. Which is a, which peace offerings in the Bible, if they're given, they are given as an example and as a symbol of thanksgiving. So really Israel is taking the time to say, uh, we've been forgiven by God and we are thankful for his victory. And so Joshua takes the opportunity to build this altar and to give sacrifice to God, remembering where credit needs to be due. We also see that within this time in verses 32 and also 34 through 35 that God's word was written, read, and heard. The center of their worship was on God's words. The words that God had given to Moses. God had given words to Moses, the law, all of what we've seen in the Pentateuch, the five chapters ahead of Joshua. God had given those to Moses to write and now Joshua writes them, reads them, and they also uh, hear them. So he, as he reads and as he writes, the people are reading them and the people are hearing them. 
It's a reminder of God's promise, God's law. God is the one who they are focusing on. And it's all centered around what he's told them. It's all centered around his word. It's not just centered about, hey, we just had a really big victory. This is really exciting. Let's worship God. Yes, that's part of it. But they center their worship on the word of God. That They look at what he said and they are thankful and they look to him. So God's word was central. And then we see in verse 33 and we see in this whole passage, and we might miss this if we don't understand uh, Jewish history. But we see that Israel remembers God's promises, verse 33. Verse 33 says this, And all Israel sojourner as well as native-born with all their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Remember, that's a, that's a symbol of God's presence. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebel, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. It's a lot of reading, so we won't necessarily read all of it, but I want to go to Deuteronomy chapter 27, so you can understand what's going on here. There's two groups of people at the base of two different mountains. What's the point of this? It seems kind of weird. They're on each side of the Ark of the Covenant. They're remembering God's presence, and they're on these mountains. Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy, we will see what Moses commanded the people to do when they came to the Promised Land. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. And uh, really, we see, this, we see a lot of this happening throughout 27 and 28. But I just want to read you. This is, a, this is a fulfillment of prophecy that Joshua is doing what Moses had asked Israel to do. So starting right in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 27 in the book of Deuteronomy. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command to you today, and on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up, set up these stones concerning which I have commanded you today on Mount Ebal. And you shall plaster them with plaster. And then you shall build an altar to the Lord God and an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. You shall offer burnt offerings to it on the Lord, for the Lord your God. And you shall, fa- shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Then Moses uh, and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command to you today. What continues on in chapter 27, you're going to see. From, from Mount Ebal, the people are supposed to read curses. And then from, the, uh, from Mount Gerizim, they are to read and to rehearse blessings. And you can read all chapter 27 and all chapter 28 and see this happening. But this is what Moses told the people to do. When you get to the land, when you are, and by the way, they couldn't do this yet because they didn't have access to these mountains because there was two cities they had to, they had to defeat before they would get there. Uh, and just by geographically, they had to go through Jericho and they had to go through Ai to get to the, where they could use these mountains to be able to worship God. And what Moses says on one mountain, you're going to have people that are going to rehearse the curses of God. Now that sounds very harsh. And, but on the other side, you're going to have people that are going to be rehearsing the blessings of God. 
Deuteronomy is very clear, and this is what they're doing in Joshua. The curses, what it is, is you will be punished, you will experience the wrath of God if you sin. If you go your own way, if you follow the way of idols, you will be cursed. And on the other side, it was if you follow the Lord your God, then you will be blessed. And that's, to put them both in a nutshell, that's exactly what's going on. Now, isn't it interesting that Israel has experienced and watched both of these things happen? As Achan sinned and the Israel is really punished in a, way, in, a, in a certain sense, cursed in a way by the fact that they lost the first battle and they had to deal with sin. And now they're seeing the opposite of it, which is the blessing that God has given. So as they're on these mountains and they're proclaiming one to another, if we follow God, we're blessed. If we don't, we'll be cursed. And it's this reminder of all the words that Moses had said. And so Israel remembers God's promises. Now it's interesting as we use the word promise. Promise doesn't always mean a good thing. Promise is I'm going to do something. And God says very clearly, if you do not follow me, you will be cursed. And if you do follow me, you will be blessed. And this is what we see Israel time and time again. They forget this time and time again. They go the way of idols as we so often will. As we follow our selfish ways, they would follow their selfish ways. And we turn our backs on God just as they will do throughout their history. And they do experience many of the curses that are, that are outlined here. Because they're not willing to really commit their lives to God himself. But let's remember... And this is the thing we always remember, right? Just like Jesus took the wrath of God and he took the punishment for us. In the same way, Jesus was the one who obeyed the law for us. Blessings come from obedience. Well, Jesus is our obedience. We're not going to be able to always follow every single law, but Jesus did. And so therefore, we can trust in him that if we come to him and give our lives to him and commit our lives to Jesus and say, I believe that through your death and your resurrection and, your, and, and the fact that you are here interceding for me, that your obedience can pay the debt for my sin. And that is what we see. That's what we know as we have the New Testament to look forward to, as we know it's here, that even though we can't obey perfectly, we have God's blessing that is being proclaimed from Mount Gerizim. We have that blessing through Jesus and through Jesus alone. So even in this, we need to keep that in perspective, that this is not, God is not a God that says, be a good person and everything will go well and be a bad person and you'll be destroyed. That's not how this works. The point is following God, obeying God. We can only do that through the power of Jesus. And so Israel restores their worship as God has restored his blessing and his presence. And Israel now is in a completely different place than they were in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a part of history that Israel would want to forget. Chapter 8 is a part of Israel that they will want to remember. The blessing and the power and the restoration that God brings. So what does that all mean for us as we move on to our conclusion? Well, as I just talked about Jesus for a little while, the first question is, is have you received restoration through Jesus Christ? Have you walked away from God? Have you, uh, have you decided to turn your back on him time and time and time again? And maybe you're sitting here today and you've turned your back on God so many times that you think there's no hope. 
that you've continued to walk your own way and you have not come to Jesus and asked him to pay for your sins, to use his obedience on your behalf. And you haven't come to that place where you have come to Jesus and you know who he is, that he he came to this earth as a perfect man to live his life here, to point us to God, to die on the cross, to pay for our sin and experience the wrath of God for us, and then to rise again and show his power over sin and death. And now he's waiting for you to come and have faith. Believe in Jesus. Give your life to him and understand that we trust in his obedience and we trust in what he did to to satisfy and appease God and that eternal life only comes through him. We can have restoration. No matter what your life looks like now, whatever it's been in the past, no matter how many sins you've committed, how many mistakes you've made, how many relationships you've burned, Jesus can restore you through his blood, and through your faith in him. And so come to him and ask for restoration. Ask for forgiveness. The book of Acts speaks about this. I do want to read that real quickly. The book of Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. This is a reminder to all those today that maybe feel like they're too far gone. Acts three nineteen through 21. This is what God does. This is what Jesus does. This is what we are told to do in light of what Jesus has done. And going back to verse 18 in chapter 3, it says this, But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be what? Blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus. And he continues to talk about that, but I want to focus on verse 20. What comes as a result of the forgiveness of our sins that are blotted out through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ? It is a time of refreshing. If you need to be refreshed, if you need to be restored, accept the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus Christ and his death. And even if you're already a Christian, you've already come to him and asked for forgiveness, this is still something that we can claim, that we can be refreshed as we remember what he's done for us. The next question I want to ask all of us today. See, Israel could have continued to say, you know, we, we don't need to go, we shouldn't go into Ai. We should just, we should go back across the Jordan. We should go back to Egypt. Uh, you know, the wilderness was better. Like, um, we lost a battle. Everything's gone. We have no hope. And they could have turned back and they could have said, God, you know, never mind. Thanks for giving us the victory at Jericho, but now we're going back. But they chose to obey God. They chose to follow through. They chose to live in the understanding that God had forgiven them and that God's presence was with them. They didn't live in guilt. They didn't give up. And so my question for us today is this. Do we live in light of God's forgiveness or do we live in light of guilt? You know, we, we are human and we are going to sin in our lives. And we have two ways of dealing with that. We can be obsessed with it and just experience guilt all the time and try to make up for our sins by being a good enough person and hopefully God will then be happy with us. That is not the way that God says we should live. He says we need to walk in forgiveness. And when we do, when we do turn away, when we do turn our backs, when we do uh, end up having moments of selfishness, that we turn back to him and we ask for forgiveness. And when he gives that forgiveness, we can live in light of that forgiveness and continue to move forward and not have to dwell on the sin. Like I've said in the past few weeks, that doesn't mean you're never going to have any consequences that are going to be coming because of that sin. But we don't have to live in the guilt and condemnation of sin any longer. 
if we have come to know Jesus and we really truly trust that he paid the wrath of God for us and that his obedience paves the way to eternal life for us, if we truly believe that, then we can't live in guilt or live a life in which we are constantly trying to make up for all the bad we've done. Just as Israel trusted God and obeyed God and moved forward, we can do the same thing in forgiveness. And we worship God as Israel did. We remember God's forgiveness. We remember his restoration. We worship him for it. That's how we live in the light of forgiveness. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to read all of Romans chapter 8. Any time that you are living a life that is uh, just covered and filled with guilt. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He took our condemnation for us so that we don't have to feel condemned and guilty. So if you are a Christian today, strive to live in forgiveness. And when you're tempted to be guilty, when you're tempted to think all is lost and there is no hope, remember what Christ has done and walk in his forgiveness. And then finally, as a follow-up question to that, do we truly take the time to remember and worship God for his restoration? Do we really take the time to remember and worship God for his restoration? Or do we take it for granted? Every single one of us was a sinner and is a sinner, and we were condemned and headed for hell. Romans 5, 8, well, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he showed us his love. That even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so therefore, we should remember that and we should worship him for that. Not take it for granted. Just like that feeling we have when we hurt somebody in our lives and then they forgive us and we're restored in our relationship with them. And the the relief and the joy that comes when a relationship is restored with someone we care about. We should have that same feeling. We should have that same understanding. We should use that to worship God because God has done that for us. No matter what we've done in our past, God can and will forgive if we just lay it at his feet and come to Christ for forgiveness. So worship him. Live in forgiveness. All of these things are so important. As we remember that God must deal with sin, God also is a God of mercy, grace, forgiveness, and restoration. So let's trust in him for those things. With that, I just close in prayer. The worship team comes forward before we sing our final song together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for today and all that was gone into this service. And I pray that you would remind us each day of the mercy and forgiveness and grace that you have shown us. That although we've all sinned and although we still have times when we turn our back on you, Lord, that you are a God of forgiveness and restoration if we will come to you, if we will worship you and ask you for that restoration. Lord, help us to live in light of the restoration and forgiveness you've given, not in guilt or shame. God, help us to look at you for who you are and not just who we think you are. God, I pray that that would be our heart's cry this morning and as we worship you now in song, Lord, help us to worship you for all who you are, all that you've done, and remember the restoration that you've given. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.